Dear Lord, it is well with my soul, but not with my emotions. I pray that you will help us, strengthen us, encourage us with your word. Your word is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. The promises that he gives to us are truth and certain. So Father, in the same way that you encouraged me this week as I prepared to share with God's people your promises to us, I pray, O oh God, that you would encourage them. I pray that we would benefit from everything that you have promised us, that we would fully experience life in Jesus' name, because you died that we might experience life that our souls would be well, that our joy would be full and complete, that our destiny would be certain and sure. And that we would experience and live in the same peace that our God enjoys always. So strengthen us now and help us with your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Among the many wonderful things that Jesus declared, John 20, 29 is very personal. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. It's as if Jesus, who had gathered his disciples around him, was peering into a different audience, looking at and deeply into the eyes and the hearts of 2,000 years of people. And right into your eyes and your heart this morning, and saying to you, blessed are you who believe, though you have not seen me. My goal this morning is to take you on a scriptural journey, well, a John scriptural journey of the blessings that Jesus had in mind when he said that, when he looked down through the corridors of time into your eyes and promised to bless you for believing on him. So I hope you come on this journey with me through the scriptures, although I'm going to have them on the uh, screen, it's just good to look in your own Bibles. It's good to know where they are and be familiar with the placement of these precious promises because you're gonna need them. You need them, that's why the Lord gave them to us, because we need them. 
It's what it means to experience life. It's, as we've been studying, our theme for this series is that you might believe. Faith, faithing, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you might have life in his name. How are you doing with reading through the book of John? How many have gone through five times already? How many are going to get there before the summer's over? <laughs> Come on, everybody. It's not a big assignment, but it's really important. It will change your life, literally. It will. God's word changes your life. That's what this verse says, that you will experience life. And the question for today is, are you experiencing that life? And I want to take you on this tour and show you what that really means, what it means to experience life in Jesus' name. Because believing is seeing. We, we're used to hearing seeing is believing, but in this case, in the case of our salvation, believing is seeing. Someday our faith will become sight. We've sung about that this morning. But for this morning, for right now, for us, right now, see, or believing is seeing. I want you to know, and I want you to remember as well, and I've shared with you uh, several times, I don't want to get so heavily grammatical with you because I know that just, you just start staring at me and you, the lights are on but nobody's home. And I understand that grammar is not really that exciting, unless you're an English teacher. Do we have anybody here who's an English teacher and just loves grammar, lives for grammar? Okay, Chris, lives for grammar. So you see, when you're reading your Bibles, believe more than, you read it more than Jesus. Jesus says faith more than you read it. Because the original words for believe in most, almost virtually all of the texts is faith. It's translated in English believe because believe is fine as long as you understand what believe really means. It means you put your trust in, you totally have faith in, you, you rely on, you depend on. Because we, we, we can separate believe in our minds. I can believe something without really believing it. So there's no ambiguity in the original discussion here. Jesus talks faith. So when you see, Jesus says faith more than we read it. So when we're reading believe, you're really seeing the word faith, faithing. And others in the scriptures have mentioned this. And though you, in 1 Peter 1, 8, 9, for instance, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, or have faith in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In 1 John 1, 1 and 3, John writes this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. And we are required to believe that what they saw, they have shared with us. 
In Romans 10, 17, we're reminded that because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's from the word of God. And so Jesus then states, because you have seen me to Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, this blessed, of course, is more than happy. It means accepted by God. Accepted by God are those who have not seen and yet believed. So, um, keep in mind from last week, this, these are only available, these precious promises are only available to those who stop unbelieving and believe. Now, I have 10 of them for you today. How's that? You've heard of a three-point sermon? Now you're really scared. <laughs> I have four minutes for each. So get out your water-cooled pens because I want to share with you 10 ways this morning from the text that believers are blessed by the acceptance of God and, and, and ask the question, are you experiencing this life? Are you experiencing these promises in your life? The pattern today will be to share with you the promise and then to discuss it with you. And the first is this, but as many as received from John 1, so we're going to chase through our Bibles from the start of John right through to the end. John 1, 12 to 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were not born who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The first glorious promise of, to the believer is you are accepted as a child of God. Accepted as a child of God. Now, by adoption, the father has one child, the son, the son of God, but we are Children of God by adoption. We're adopted into this exclusive family of God. We have the right to become children of God. Prior to our salvation, we are not children of God. I want to make this abundantly clear to you this morning. We are not all praying to the same God as some would have us believe. Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, all, all the various religions all say the same thing. Oh, we're all praying to the same God. We are not all praying to the same God. He gave the right to become children of God even though to those who believe in His name, the name above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, literally His person, believing in Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the anointed one, allegiance and trust, dependence, reliance on him, acknowledging Jesus as the Savior, confessing him as your Lord and Savior. Those who do so enjoy the right of being the covenant people of God. It's an exclusive, exclusive family to be accepted by God. 
and children of God. No, the world, all the world is not children of God. We're not all children of God. Only those who believe in his name are children of God and enjoy the right of being in covenant with God. We are new, new birth people, spiritual birth through the gracious, saving gift of God to draw you to believe. Even that we are able to believe is a gift of God's grace, and he draws us to himself. We won't take the time to turn there, but Revelation 13, 8 talks about the Lamb's book of life. It talks about all those who are not in the Lamb's book of life, which was made before the creation of the world. Your name was penned in the book, the Lamb's book of life, before God created the world. You were appointed to salvation. That's why John says, not by heritage, not by natural birth, not by the will of a man, but by grace, by the gracious gift of God. You have been brought into his family. Second, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, or for God loved the world like so, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The supreme symbol of God's love for human beings who he created is to offer up his perfect sinless son to be a sacrifice on behalf of us, that he might die for us. Because the Bible reminds us that the wages of sin is death, and Jesus Christ willingly paid those wages for us that we might have eternal life and we will not perish. We have been taken from being objects of God's wrath, doomed to destruction, to glorious life forever. Look, if you, if you are following along with me in your Bibles, and I hope you are, in John 3, at the very end of the chapter, it says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son or unbelieves will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. At the cross of Calvary, the wrath of God was poured out on his Son. Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of all who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what the big word propitiation means. Our, we have been propitiated before God. The wrath of God that remains on those who unbelieve has been removed because of Jesus Christ from us. That's the promise. And we've been granted eternal life. All humans, by the way, are eternal. All humans are eternal. Your eternal existence Begin at conception. Your eternal life begins at salvation. There's an entirely different reality. Your eternal existence began at conception. Your eternal life began at salvation. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are already eternally alive. 
You are already living eternally. You already have been granted eternal life. It's just a question of where you're going to spend that. Now, keep in mind when the scriptures talk about whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's talking about eternal existence in a place where there is an absence of anything good. Perishing means living without the life-giving reality of the living God. It means eternally conscious and a conscious existence, but without God and without anything good. So your eternal life began at salvation. Your destiny is set for those who believe in Jesus Christ. For those who continue to unbelieve, they live every day of their lives under the wrath of God. And then for all eternity. So there's either eternal life in the presence of Christ or perishing. There is no third option. Moving forward in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death to life. Do you see this? Whoever hears my word and believes. See the connection here. In, in Romans 10, 17, where Paul writes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He got that from Jesus. Jesus made that connection right here. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Let me ask you a question this morning. Those of you who are here in this room or watching us online, are you hearing the word of God and believing in the one who sent Jesus Christ? Are you believing in the Lord? Because this hearing my word means putting it into practice. Putting it into practice. If so, you have been delivered from judgment. On the day of your salvation, you were acquitted of all previous and future charges against you. That's the word we use in theological terms, justified. You were justified. Your sins were paid in full. An unbeliever who is spiritually dead may be physically existing, and they are, but under the judgment and condemnation of God always and ultimately. But not so with those who believe in Jesus Christ. To, to us who believe in him, we have now been released from any judgment. That's why Paul writes, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No one who can bring a charge against God's elect. Now, no one can now bring a charge against you and say you are guilty of something. You have been released, freed of your sins, freed of those sins that you have repented of. You have been set free. So the same one who charged you with capital crimes against the Father, the same one who charged you with capital crimes against God, paid your penalty 
of your guilt as charged on your behalf. And now by this promise, now forever promises to protect you from any future reprisal for the charges that were against you as a sinner. Because Jesus Christ has paid them in full. I'm not sure whether we've taken any time to consider what it means to be freed of our guilt, freed of the burden of our guilt. Because even though we have been saved and rescued from the power of sin, it still regularly rears its vile head in our lives, doesn't it? John writes, anybody who says they have not sinned is a liar and the truth is not in them. In fact, it's probably been difficult for us to have come into this room without somehow sinning today. Perhaps unconsciously, unknowingly, perhaps knowingly. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the promise to the believer that you are now delivered from judgment. In John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now this is not referring to food and beverage. This is helping us to understand at the very core level of human need, which is food and drink. I mean, that's the basics that keep us alive. At the very core of the symbol of what keeps us alive, symbol, symbolized spiritually, is found in Jesus. Jesus is our spiritual food. Jesus is our spiritual beverage. Jesus is the one who at the very core of our existence completely satisfies us. You are, if you are a believer, spiritually satisfied. The empty soul is prone to restlessness, addictiveness, and idolatry. That, that's what's happening. But that's finally fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Happening all around us are souls that are restless. People you know, people in your family, people who don't know Jesus Christ. You see them going from here to there. They're always looking for something, always searching for the next idea, always searching for some sort of meaning in life, always searching for the next high, always restless, always trying to find some new spirituality to salve their souls. Jesus Christ is the only one who can completely satisfy your restlessness. The soul is restless until it finds its rest in Jesus Christ. I never go looking for anything else. 
Do you go looking for anything? Are, are, you, are you thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I don't have enough spiritual reality in my life. I, I never think that way. I don't go looking around. Oh, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something better. <laughs> I, I never think about, I never think that way. I, surely you don't. Surely you never think as, a, as, as one who's satisfied in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's something better out there. Now, listen, let me point out to you that the Bible also makes the point that while Jesus Christ satisfies us fully, it's not a one-time hit. Just like you didn't eat one time and drink one time and say, that's it, I'm good for the rest of my life. Now, in terms of all you need, spiritually, you find in Jesus Christ. However, the expectation here is you will keep on feeding, keep on drinking in Jesus Christ. Those who are completely unsatisfied, of course, are unsatisfied because they are empty of God. But those who have that spiritual desire for more in Christ, seek him out and seek his filling. Be filled with the Spirit is an ongoing call in our lives. Keep being filled in the Spirit because Jesus is the only one who will satisfy you. So what or who satisfies you? Where do you go? Who do you go to to fill a sense of emptiness If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope you're benefiting from this blessing of being satisfied in Jesus. In John chapter seven, verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you know what you are? You are a conduit of spiritual blessing. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that means you have received the Holy Spirit. And if you have received the Holy Spirit, the promise of the blessing here is of the indwelling Spirit who makes believers an overflow of spiritual things to one another. From within your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The rich presence of the Holy Spirit overflows from you to the benefit of others through the sharing of your gifts and the benefits of the fruit of the Spirit. We are blessed to be a blessing to one another as we exercise the giftedness, our giftedness and the fruit of the Spirit one to another. From within us, from our innermost being, flows rivers of living water, breathing fresh life into one another through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. So how are you practically benefiting other people with this promise as a believer? Are you exercising your giftedness one to another? Are you bearing witness to the fruit of the Spirit in your life in the areas of gifts and character, abilities and character? In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, there's a more that you can read about in terms of the gifts of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, 
verses 19 through 22, talk about the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, I want to I want to just remind us of that this morning because it's imperative that we recognize the contrast of what this means to have the, from our innermost being, flowing rivers of living water. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In all of these, the fruit of the Spirit granted us who are believers. We are able to bless one another with this fruit. As opposed to the acts of the sinful nature, which are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Those are the characteristics of unbelievers. The fruit of the Spirit are the characteristics of believers. How are you doing there? How are you benefiting others? Are you benefiting others with this flow of living water? In John chapter 11, John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, meaning Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? He asked Martha if she believed that. He asks you if you believe that today. Do you believe this? Because everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. You note that Jesus says everyone who lives and believes in me. He's making a really important point here. I mean, you couldn't believe in Jesus unless you were alive. True? So why does he say everyone who lives and believes in me? Why wouldn't he say everybody who believes in me and lives? He's talking about receiving the gift of belief, the saving life. Everyone who has this saving life and continues to believe in me will never die. In fact, yes, the mortal life will die, but you will put on immortality the life that Christ has given to you. 
So you will, you will be finally resurrected to life. That's the promise here. Your mortal body will die, but you will not. And you will receive a replacement body. Now, allow me to wander here for a few moments because there's so many questions about this. Let me try and put some biblical perspective on it. Between our mortal death and the receiving of our resurrection bodies is an interim period of time. You don't receive your resurrection body the moment you die. But you are present with the Lord immediately, consciously present with the Lord. And the Bible gives us very, very little detail about what that period of existence time is about. We just simply know we are present with the Lord. Because in the text, Martha answered the question, Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, yeah, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Our resurrection bodies are given to us at the last day. Not the last day of our life, at the last day. In between, in my father's house are many rooms. I know it will be great. We'll be in the presence of the Lord. God's rooming house, I don't know. But our resurrection bodies are later. You will, finally, you will be finally resurrected to life in the last day. John chapter 11, verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now the context here is the raising of Lazarus. And the witness of Martha and Mary to see their brother brought to life. So Jesus is saying, did I not say to you that if you believed, if you believed in me, you would see the glory of God. That promise is also granted to us. You will see God's glory. God's life-giving and dominant power over demons and sin and disease and death. Now listen very carefully. We are the special objects of God's glory that we might be brought into an awareness. While we don't see Jesus, we see his glory. That's the promise that is given to us. At his pleasure, at the pleasure of Christ, believers experience break-ins of the age to come manifestations of his magnificence in anticipation of his uninterrupted glory in the age to come. Now, I know that's a mouthful of statement. When we're talking about the glory of Jesus, we're talking about the weighty manifestation of his magnificence. It's hard to describe glory. It means heaviness. The word glory means heaviness, weightiness. It, it means the, 
the, the magnificent weightiness of our amazing God. We can't even behold the unveiled glory of God. We would, we would be vaporized. We, we can't, in our human state, view the uninterrupted or unveiled glory of God. That's why we see through a, a glass dimly until we are in his presence, until we are transformed into our resurrection body so that we can actually be able to gaze at the glory of God. But now we see glimpses of his glory. We have been granted opportunities to see the glory and the manifestations of the glory of God. We see it when God does something spectacular around us like rescue someone from a disease or, or save someone from a horrendous accident or whatever God chooses to do. These are evidences of God's glory like he was willing to do in the presence of Martha and Mary to raise up Lazarus from the dead. And all of these are break-ins from the age to come when there will be no more death, no more dying, no more sickness, no more tears. But for now, there are, there's much death and there's much dying and there's much disease and there's much sickness and there's much sadness and there's much tears. But every so often, God reaches in and rescues us from one of those moments and arrests it and changes it. And those are evidences and breakings of his glory from the age to come. Occasionally, in the scriptures, God pulled back the curtain to help us to see this. Such as Peter, when he said, Peter, Satan desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. That was... Um, Jesus giving Peter an insight into the unseen world of the battle that Satan has against our lives. Even this week, Satan desired perhaps to sift some of you. You just don't know it. And Jesus stepped in the way and said, no. Perhaps one of you were on a head-on collision course with another vehicle that would have taken your life, but Jesus stepped in and changed the timing. And you missed it by that much. Not coincidentally. A break-in of the glory of Jesus Christ. How, how, how do you know how many times the glory of God has intervened on your behalf to stop a sickness. We, we always think, we were thinking all the time about, oh, oh, he hasn't stopped this or he hasn't done that or he hasn't done this. How, how many unseen things has he done for you and for me? I know for a fact. I just know the way I live. I know for a fact that Jesus has intervened multiple times in my life. I, I can't, I can't, I can't tell you for sure. I just, I just know. And you know too. You will see God's glory. 
in John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Do you see the connection here? You, because of the promises of believing in Jesus Christ, will lead a holy, unhidden life. If you, be if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will not remain in darkness. The blessing of no longer having to live in hiding. That's what, that's what this is picturing. This is picturing both a life of choosing sin and a life of hiding because of sin. Neither of those are compatible with the Christian life. Neither of those are compatible with experiencing life in Jesus' name. None of those. Neither, neither of those. We will not continue in sin we will not continue to live in hiding, cowering. What was the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They went into hiding. Jesus said, those who believe in me can come out from hiding. You no longer have to live in hiding. You no longer have to live in darkness, cowering, filled with guilt and shame. You can come into the light because the light reveals, the light heals, the light helps. Those who've come to know Christ but have fallen into addictions prior to coming to know him that have realigned their physical desires and appetites. When they come to know Christ, their life is at war with itself. The war of the, the, the reigning addiction, physically realigning their desires and appetites over against this promise that you will come out of hiding, that you will, you will be revolt, uh, repelled by your sin. You'll, you'll find it a, a revulsion, your sin. Living in the darkness will feel repulsive to you and, and will result in a desire to move into the light to be transformed the, the one who truly believes in the Lord is not wanting to sin. The one who truly believes in the Lord is not wanting to hide in their sin. The, the one who truly believes in the Lord who has sinned will come out of hiding and repent and, and own up to it and be accountable for it. That's what we do. That's why we live in community. Confess your sins one to another. Why does the scriptures tell us to do that? Why it command us to do that? So that you might come out of hiding and find healing in the, in the, uh, in the body of Christ. We're a healing community. We're a helping community. We're a rescuing community. We're helping people escape from their sin. We're urging people to seek forgiveness for their sin. We're urging people to repent of their sin. We urge people to be accountable for their sin. Come out of hiding and enjoy the presence of the glorious light of Jesus Christ. If you're bound up in your, bathroom, uh, your bedroom hiding in some dark corner with your sin, you are not experiencing the life that Christ died to give you. <clears throat> John 
John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these he will do because I go to, to the Father. Uh, much, much, much commentary ink is spilled on this verse. Think, oh, you know, oh, we will do greater works. And listen, here's, what, here's, here's the operative understanding of this text. Look what Jesus says. Greater works than these he will do because the operative word, I go to the Father. During the time Jesus was among us, he's, he's contrasting the time that he was among us against the time that he will be with his Father. That's the, that's the contrast here. The time he was among us, he was limited and restricted in a human body, in a geographical location. Most of his message was veiled to those around who did not understand or misunderstood. Now that he is, now he's talking about once he has gone to the cross, died, buried, rose again, the presence and gift and promise of the Holy Spirit has come upon the people of God who believe in him. Now through the uninterrupted victory over the power of sin and Satan and death, Jesus Christ operates in us and says to us that greater works, he doesn't say more works. He doesn't say more spectacular works. He says greater works, not done by us, done through us by the glorious ascended Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father. So you are effectively fruitful. You are made effectively fruitful. The post-resurrection power of Christ at work in a righteous person is powerful and effectively productive. These believer blessings will result in even greater works of Christ through his post-cross people. That's why he looks into the future and says to us, blessed are you who haven't seen but you believe. And then finally, John 17, 20 and 21. In the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus says this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but, uh, but for those also who believe in me. He's looking at his disciples and say, I don't, as he's praying to his father, I'm not simply praying for these alone, but I'm praying for the people at Calvary Baptist Church on a July Sunday in 2023. When I say, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Here's the great news, beloved. You and I are intentionally prayed for by Jesus that we might be unified in the cause of Jesus Christ together globally. Ponder this a lot. When you do a deep dive into the great religions of the world, by great I mean known, not in quality. Virtually all of the religions other than Christianity are regional 
racial, cultural. Think about it. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and on and on. There is only one religion in this world that cuts across every cultural line, every racial line, all gender, age, race, history, heritage, social position, geography, and that's Christianity. People from every tribe, race, tongue, people, group. Why? Because Jesus prayed it would be so. Christianity is this great melting pot of all people. Welcomed by Jesus Christ and his salvation. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your family history. It's not about your age. It's not about your gender. It's not about your social standing. It's whether or not you're a human being. You are empowered to live in noticeable and inexplicable unity. Why do I say inexplicable unity? Because the nations are in an uproar against one another. Turn the, turn the news on. Niger is having a rebellion. Russia's fighting Ukraine. Ukraine's fighting Russia. It, it just continues to foment all over the place. There's wars and rumors of wars and threats. There's racial division. There's strife. There's gender fighting. There's age fighting. Everything's going on, but not in the church of Jesus Christ. Not us. So it's inexplicable unity because it's not natural, explained only through belief in the Father's mission to send the Son to redeem a united global people for his name. We are prayed that we might be united to one another in the cause of Christ and in the message of Christ. And it's so. Wherever you go around the world, you can find yourself a church and the people will love you immediately because you know Christ. And when you have a local church that's a total mixture, and for me this means everything, it has always, mean, it has always meant a lot to me because I think it's most biblical. I don't like parochial church. Parochial, by parochial means tribal, divided by age, whatever. I don't think that's a biblical position. I believe in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. Multi-ethnic, multi-generational local church whereby every expression, as much as is possible, I mean, we live in different geographic locations, I realize that. But where it's possible, it is truly a response to the prayer of Jesus. And why did he pray this for us? So that, what's your text say? So that the world would believe that you sent me. It's our missionary God's heart. An authentic, multi-ethnic, multi-generation 
believers working in concert and in unity around the message of Christ so that the world would believe that Jesus is real because there's no other way to explain it than that Jesus has caused this to happen. It's a beautiful thing. So what's the goal of this whole series? According to John, the goal is that you might experience life in his name. How's that going for you? Are you experiencing life in his name? You can. If you don't know him as savior, today is the day of salvation. If you know him and you are missing out on some of these benefits of experiencing life, today, by the power and work of Jesus in your life, that can change and it needs to change. Our Father and our God, thank you so much. You're a good God. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you for the benefits of experiencing life in Jesus' name. Blessed are those who have not seen Jesus yet believe. From the very mouth of Christ, you have told us what we should expect, that experiencing life in Jesus' name is all about. Thank you for encouraging our hearts today, Lord. We needed that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stop unbelieving and believe and experience life in his name. We'll be here at the front to speak to you after the service. Pastors will be in the connections room. You can connect with us online. You can connect with us during the week in the office. We'd love to show you how you can come to know Christ and experience life in his name. Don't leave without Jesus. Our Father and our God, thank you so much. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this grand and great life that you have given to us because of the price you paid for us on the cross of Calvary. We love you, O Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name.